0: I appreciate Kyle Rogers filling in for me last week. Our family was away, uh, enjoying some downtime in uh, Broken Bow in a big cabin, and uh, it was big enough that for four days I never left the cabin. It was crazy. So I went out for a walk one day, but other than that, I mean, it was all there in this one giant cabin. So we had a great time. You know, the gospel does offer us a place to come home for those who are heartbroken over guilt their past. Jesus says, come home. There's forgiveness. To those who are crushed by the weight of their circumstances, things out of their control, Jesus says, come home. There's healing. To those trapped in sin, addictions, and issues bigger than themselves, Jesus says, come home. There's a power bigger than what controls you. And to those who don't have the strength or motivation to carry on, Jesus says, come home. I have what you need. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And to those who do, the door opens. Jesus receives you. And he begins a process of making all things new. Our message today is called Miracles Happen When We Come Home. It's true. It's the message of Scripture from beginning to end. When man comes to the end of himself, when man says, I can't do it, and he comes home to the Lord, then God does what man could never do. And verses like Acts 3.19 just ring out with this promise. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you're caught in, whatever it is you don't have the strength to overcome, Jesus says, come home to me and I will be the one who will bring times of refreshing. He offers hope. Today so, yeah, we're gonna see that in a, in a, a clear picture from Scripture, from the Christmas story, in fact. And the gospel is woven not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. And there was always this promise that when one came home to the Lord, that the difference didn't just change eternity, but it changed life here as well. It was always that promise that this gospel hope, this faith, would change things here. For those who were struggling at home, there was hope here. For those who were struggling with their future, there was hope here. You come to the very last verses of the Old Testament, written in prophecy about John the Baptist and who he would proclaim Jesus to come. It tells us this in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he, I want you to listen to what says he will do. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. There's nothing worse than when the family unit has broken down. Then when the husbands no longer are turned to their children in love, when husbands are no longer turning to their wife with love, and when the children no longer love their parents, and when a wife no longer loves her husband, that is equivalent to a curse in a home. And God says, for those who will repent and come to me, I will come. And here is the thing I will do. I will take a father's heart and I'll turn it toward his children. And I'll take the heart of children and I'll turn them to their father. And what happens next is the most powerful picture of heaven on earth when a family experiences the presence of Christ. Amen. This is the hope and the promise of the gospel that homes would be transformed. And home is where so much of the believability of the gospel happens. You know, it's fascinating. I can stand here and preach week in and week out. Um, You can attend Bible studies. You can listen to preaching online but it's what happens in your home that will give your children the real believability in the gospel. Because they can come here to hear it. They can be in kids' church and hear it. But when they go home and they hear how a dad speaks to them, When they see how mom and dad relate to one another, then that child will determine whether or not he'll believe that gospel, because that's where the reality happens, is when you get home. The gospel has always had this attachment to it. Jesus invites us to come home to him, but then he invites us to bring him into our home and to make the lasting change, the most powerful difference. And your children will gain their confidence in the faith by what happens here, but more so by what happens in your home. And so it's, it's no wonder today that the home is under so much attack, that the very foundations of what God designed a home to be are being sabotaged, being taught against. The roles of men and women are being rewritten today. The foundation of truth is being torn away from what God established in his word. Right is now based on your own feelings about a situation. And wrong is now based on personal offense, you getting your feelings hurt, And biblical truths these days have all of a sudden become publicly offensive. The more you stand up to proclaim eternal biblical truth, the more the world reacts today. And it's gotten to the point in our own nation where those who stand up in support of biblical values are acting against the laws of the land. To speak out today against homosexuality in some cities and states across our land is a punishable crime. In some states today, refusing to buy into the critical race theory and into the Black Lives Matter movement will find you in some pretty hot water. And in some states today, the very thing that we are doing right now, attending church, when a public mandate has been made against it in that state will get you into some trouble. Our nation today is running fast as it can away from God's eternal fixed truths. Man is doing today what man did in the garden. Man is saying, I will do what I will do. I will decide what is right and wrong. I will not listen to God's standards anymore. I will decide, I will choose. And man is doing that today in the face of knowing there's a God who sits in heaven, who reigns from his throne, who is holy and just. He is the creator, we are the created. He is the holy, we are the fallen. He is the one who decrees what is and what shall be. We are the one who's called to abide by it. And the world today is just stiff-arming this God saying, I will do what I will do. But it is God who makes the laws. It is God who makes the decrees. It is God who determines what is of eternal value. It is God who raises up kings and puts them down. It is God who reigns sovereign over all things. It's not up to us to decide what we want to do and what we like to do and how we like to do it. It's up to us to come before a God who's been offended by our sin and fall down, cry out for mercy, and then walk in his ways. That's our responsibility. Amen. Now I get it, we live in a day of choices, and man, what an opportunity in the the nation we live. There are choices for just about everything that you might want to do today. It's fascinating to me that we all got up today, we all put on a set of clothes, and none of us came here today in the same set of clothes, because we all had options. The closet had clothes in it. The stores had clothes in it. You got to choose your style, your size, your color that you like, and you chose it. And none of us are wearing the same thing today. That's awesome. I'm glad for that. Just going to the grocery store is a whole set of unbelievable options. You can choose which store you want to go to. You can choose where you're going to park in the parking lot. You can choose which door you're going to go in, most stores. You can choose which aisle you want to walk down in most places. You can choose what you want to buy. You can choose your favorite snacks for a rainy day like today. I did some research this week about snacks in America and the unbelievable options that are available to us. Now, I realize that these numbers I'm about to tell you don't represent our local Walmart or HEB, whichever may be your choice. But they do represent choices in our nation today. For example, if you were going to buy potato chips today, there's an exhausting number of options that are out there. In our nation today, when it comes to potato chips alone, there are 2,006 options for you to choose from. That's a lot of options. That's a lot of choices. If you want to narrow it down and say, I just want to get chips with ripples in them you can narrow that down to 601 different options. If you just wanted to get some tortilla chips of some kind, we can narrow that down to 594 options. That's why you spend longer at the grocery store than you intend to. There's a lot of options out there. There's a lot of choices. And you guys aren't sure which one your wife likes yet, right? A <laughs> lot of options. I get it. That's a cool thing. Options. Options give you a sense of power. Options give you this sense of, yeah, I can get what I want. And you choose, you make your choice, you feel pretty good about it and you leave and you come home and options do give you this sense of uniqueness and power. But it also does a weird thing. It makes you ultra attentive to your wants and desires. And sometimes that very sense of choice Mixed with a, a nature bent towards sin, can get you in a place where you think you can choose what life is all about. You can choose the way you want to walk. You can choose. What marriage is and what marriage is not. You can choose your gender, what it is and what it's not. You can choose which moral code you want to follow, which ones you don't. You can choose which Bible stories you want to believe, which ones you don't. You can choose what's of God and what is of not. I'm going to tell you, friends, you can make some choices regarding chips and snacks. You don't have that choice when it comes to God and his ways and his word. And I think that is what's happening in our land today. We are seeing the results of chip lovers. Really, we are seeing the results of a nation ourselves who have had the option to choose whatever we want, and we practice it all day, all week, and you come to God's word, and if you're not careful, you'll do the same thing. Oh, I like that verse, yes, it's just, hmm. That one, no, that doesn't fit my ideas. I don't like that. That doesn't fit. Now, that certainly doesn't fit my circumstances right now. I'm not listening to that. You can't come to God's word and truth with you getting to choose. You come to God's word with your heart surrendered to him saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. I don't care how good it feels, how right it feels, how tingly it makes you on the inside that has no bearing on it. Truth is not about your feelings. Truth is not about your pleasures. Truth is not about your opinion. Truth is not about your own logic. Truth is truth is truth is truth, truth, and we are called to conform to it. Amen? So when you come upon a story like we do today, we're going to see that God makes choices that are different than how we would choose. This is the life of faith. This is what happens. He chooses the course. He chooses the path. And he does not choose like we choose. And faith says... I will bow, yield, and conform to what God says, not what I see. Amen? So turn in your Bible this morning to Micah, the Old Testament, chapter 5, verse 2. It's just one verse, and we're going to launch into the New Testament here in just a minute. But the story, or this verse, deals with uh, a town that you and I know connected to the Christmas story. It deals with the old little town of Bethlehem. And today I think you're going to see something new about Bethlehem that will cause you to never hear the song O oh, Little Town of Bethlehem ever the same again. In Micah, we're in the Old Testament, and prophecy is written there about where Jesus will be born. And a little bit of background will help us know the significance of this little town. So here is Micah 5, verse 2, the beginning part. And here the prophet writes, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among thousands of Judah, and I'm going to pause right there before we go into the rest of the verse. Because here the prophet gives us a description about Bethlehem. And it uses the word that you and I are familiar with for our Christmas song, little. Little town of Bethlehem. And he puts it in a comparative way for us. Bethlehem, little among the thousands of Judah. Among all the cities, among all the people groups, Bethlehem was little. We might use the word insignificant. It was considered insignificant insignificant among the cities. It was the Ovilla of the Metroplex kind of thing, right? If you had the experience of where you're, you're at some store, and you're over in, maybe in Duncanville, maybe you're in Frisco, maybe you're in Dallas somewhere, and, and you buy something in the store, and they want to put your information in the computer, and they ask you, and what city do you live in? And you say, Ovilla, and they say, oh, what? And you have to try to explain to them. And it's the same song and dance for me all the time. They're like, where's that? I say, well, have you heard of Red Oak? No. Have you heard of Waxahachie? Ah, oh, I think so. Well, how about DeSoto? Mm, maybe. So you have to go this whole little thing. I usually just say, it's south of Dallas. Yeah, just... And they're like, Waco? No, no, not that far. <laughs> People just don't know where, th- where we are here. And that's a shame. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Maybe it's not. I don't know. Yeah. Bethlehem is that, but maybe even more so. Bethlehem, considered to all that was around them, was insignificant. They were insignificant because of their size. A few hundred people. You talk about small town. Small town. Insignificant because of their wealth. They didn't have it. Insignificant because of their power, there was none. Reputation, economy, education level, they just didn't have it. Bethlehem, little among the thousands of Judah. It was considered insignificant. Now, Bethlehem had been in scripture earlier. There had been times when the city of Bethlehem was mentioned, and some significant things happened in Bethlehem, but it had been a long time. And Bethlehem no longer had what it once had. Bethlehem was the place where Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had a wife who, giving birth to the son, Benjamin, she died. She was buried in Bethlehem. It's sad. That'll make you not think so highly about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the place where war would later break out and the whole tribe of that Benjamin would almost be destroyed. Ruth, Naomi are from Bethlehem. And Samuel the prophet was sent to the small town of Bethlehem to meet a man named Jesse who had some sons that he was to choose one from to anoint as king. And that one was David. David. David was from Bethlehem, part of this tribe, bigger family group of Judah. And so this is what had made Bethlehem significant, but it really wasn't that anymore. Small town, insignificant, but God is about to rewrite history. And he does that. He takes what we might think is insignificant, and makes something highly significant out of it. He takes the things that the world would dismiss, and he does his greatest work in them and through them. God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So I don't mind being from Ovilla, because God does great things in insignificant places. Amen. And he will do that not just in cities, but he will do that in our lives. If you today think of yourself as insignificant, you're in pretty good company. Because that is the kind of person that God uses. If you've got some places in your life today that you might think, you know, that just seems like a pretty insignificant part of my life. I just don't know that God's going to do anything significant there. Guess what? You've just qualified it as a great place for God to work because God loves to take the places of insignificance and do something significant there. So here is what he says next about this Bethlehem in Micah 5. It says, yet... "...out of you, out of you Bethlehem shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel." from this small town, from this little town of Bethlehem, this insignificant, passed over, looked down on, I wanna move out, I wanna get away from land of Bethlehem, a place of pain, a place of past memories, a place that you just wouldn't think anything great would come from. God says, here's what I'm gonna do in this insignificant place that you've labeled it. I'm going to bring forth a king and he will be the one who rules over Israel and who will rule over all things. He will come out of Bethlehem. Mm. What an amazing thing. God could have chosen any city for Jesus to be born. He could have chosen a more populated city. He could have chosen a city of greater wealth. He could have chosen a city with great military might popularity and reputation and a city that had known maybe less pain, a city where there had been royalty perhaps, but in this one little city, God was about to do something highly significant, and it would take faith to believe that, because when you looked at it, you wouldn't have assessed it to be that way, but you know, that's how faith works, Faith says, God, I will base my evaluation on life based on what you say is important, not what I say is important. Because you and I get caught up in trivial matters sometimes. We get caught up in popularity. We get caught up in likability. We get caught up in money. We get caught up in the opinions of others We get caught up in comparing ourselves with others. And God's not interested in any of those. He's looking for the heart that will be surrendered to him and will say, God, my life for you. And in that one, I don't care how small or insignificant you might see yourself as, in that one, God will do great things. The heart that surrendered. So out of Bethlehem will come this one, this ruler, this king. God's going to do something amazing, but it will take faith to see it. So now we jump to the New Testament to see how it all unfolds. The cool thing is we have this chance to see the prophecy made and we get to see it fulfilled. So turn your new, in the New Testament in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. It's the story of Christmas that I'm sure you're familiar with. It's the story of Joseph and Mary, two young teens who fall in love. It's two young teens that are not living in Bethlehem. Hmm. They're living in another town called Nazareth. We don't have any indications of why they left Bethlehem. We don't know that they had ever visited Bethlehem. What we do know is that Joseph had ancestors from Bethlehem, namely David. 28 generations back in the family tree of Joseph is David. And David is from Bethlehem. And in the Jewish culture, where you're from is important. The family you belong to is important. The tribe you were a part of is important. And God always called them back to their tribe, back to their family, because family is where God works. Family is where God trains up new generations. Families are where God blesses. And God is about to take a young couple from a place that they had gotten comfortable back to a place that was home, and he's about to do something powerful in their life because they're going to leave where they are and go back home, amen? Luke chapter two, it says in verse one, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, in simple terms here, Rome passed a law that everybody under Roman hand was going to be taxed. We're going to count everybody so we can tax everybody so we can get more income for the kingdom of Rome. And Jews didn't like this a whole lot because Rome had come in and taken over. They were having to be, in a sense, almost slaves of Rome. And here a decree is passed, and it says it happens It came to pass in those days, in those days. We read about Caesar Augustus here. If you were to read other parts of the Gospel of Luke, you'd find that there was a king who was reigning in Israel at the time. His name was Herod. And Herod was a pretty terrible guy. Herod was a guy who was a king. He had a position, but he had a lot of insecurities, He had a lot of problems with his own self. He was so cruel, so ruthless, so insecure that he stayed jealous all the time of anybody and uncertain all the time of anybody who got near him. He was afraid they were coming to take over. He was always suspicious of everyone's motives. He always was on the lookout to see who was coming to take over his throne. He didn't want to give up his kingdom, his position. History tells us that he was such a ruthless and cruel man that he had two sons that he feared might try to take his place on the throne. So he killed them. He's ruthless. So when the Bible says it came to pass in those days, these are those days. It's ruthless. Governmental power is cruel. There's not any moral code to it. It's very immoral. It's very unjust. But look here. God is about to work through ungodly men to bring about godly purposes. You see, God can do that because he sits on a throne that reigns over every throne. He has power over every power. And don't think just because kings rise up today and do what it looks like they want to do don't think that they haven't been given that freedom by the one who reigns on the throne over them because God will move whoever he wants to do whatever he wants to accomplish as his purposes. I can trust in that office above every office. Amen? We're going to see that here in this story. A decree went out for all to be registered so they could be taxed. And then... Verse 2 gives us this short little sentence that says, This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, for historians, you can go back and look because this is basically a timestamp that says exactly when it happened. You can go back into the history books and find out the date when this happened based on this timestamp right here. We go on in verse three, and it says, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, it's very interesting. You've got the, the Jewish people having a king inside a kingdom of Roman rule. So they have some abilities to affect some law, but Romans rule over all. And when Rome says, we want everyone to be registered, we're going to conduct a census. Then everyone had to respond. Everyone had to obey. But history tells us that that Rome didn't require everyone to go back to their homeland. That could have happened wherever they were living. But Jewish customs said family is important, homeland is important. For this, we want you to return to your lineage, your homeland, where your ancestors are from. And so when it says they all went to be registered, everyone to his own city, the Jews are going to go back to the city that their family was from. And as we're about to see, Joseph will go back to Bethlehem because that's where his family, David, was from. God was calling them back to Bethlehem. Home, though they hadn't been there. There's no reference in Scripture that David, I mean, that Joseph and Mary had ever been to Bethlehem. Scripture tells us in verse 4 that Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. This is where they were living. It's tough to have to leave where you've been. You know, I came to Ovilla. Because I had to leave where I was. And when my parents told me we were leaving Oak Cliff to come to O'Villa, I said, oh me. I had never heard of O'Villa, and I was not interested in O'Villa. I had my friends, I had my plans, and I had my comfort in Oak Cliff at 610 Eli Avenue. And I wasn't about to leave. I made all kinds of crazy statements to my parents about wanting to get an apartment as a sophomore in high school with no job and live in Oak Cliff somehow. I don't know how that was going to happen, but it was just what I wanted to do. And I ended up having to leave where I was to come to where I would be because if I'd never left where I was, I would never get to be where I am. I would never have met my wife. I would never have been introduced into ministry in which the way I was, I would not be here today. I would not have the children I have, the grandchildren I have, the family, the friend groups I have. I had to leave where I was to get to where I am. This is a standard principle for life and faith. You have to leave where you are if you want to get to where God has you. And if you plant your feet Stubbornly, where you are and choose to not ever leave, then I cannot promise you that you're going to experience the blessings that God has for you in the future. Because miracles happen when you leave where you are and go to the place God calls you. You've probably heard the statement before, if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll keep getting what you've always gotten. Fairly simple sentence. Very powerful truth. If you just keep doing the exact same thing, if you just keep believing the exact same way, If you never progress in your faith, if you never change the way you relate, if you never grow in your character, if you don't ever change how you respond to people, if you don't learn to see God differently, if you don't learn to see circumstances differently, you're going to keep getting the same amount of frustration, fear, anxiety, depression, problems, addictions that you've always had. You've got to leave where you've been to get to where God wants you to go. Simple concept but it takes great faith. Joseph and Mary were about to have to leave Nazareth. Nazareth was their home. They were young, but it was home. I was 14 in Oak Cliff, and that was home. Joseph and Mary were about to leave Nazareth because they have to go to Bethlehem for this census, for this taxing. Nazareth was the place where they had met. Nazareth was the place where family and friends were. Nazareth was the place where an angel had appeared to both of them. God had worked in their life. God had spoken to them. Their faith had been changed in Nazareth. And now you're saying, I've got to leave that spot. I've got to go away from there. I've got to go to Bethlehem. I've got to go back to home. Yes, That's how you experience the greatest miracles in your life and the transformation that God wants to do in you. When you're willing to leave what you currently think, believe, and the way you see God. You and I are called to a process of growth and change, and this is about to happen for Joseph and Mary. You see, God is passionate for you to change. He doesn't want you to stay like you are today. He wants to change everything about you for good, for his glory, for your good, so that you might know him, but you're going to have to be willing to leave where you are. So pregnant at the time, Mary and Joseph leave. Verse 4 and the second part says that they go into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. I wonder if Joseph knew. I wonder if he put together in his own mind the prophecies that he had heard. I wonder if he put it all together that he was from the lineage of David. I wonder if he realized the verse from Micah 5-2. I wonder if he put it all together and said, I have to do this. This is not just something that Caesar has decreed. This is not just something that Herod's been a part of. This is something that God has orchestrated and ordained. I have to get back to home. It says that he did so. Verse five, it says he did this to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Hmm. Joseph chose to live out his faith with Mary. Now she's pregnant at this time and she's getting close to the day. They don't know the exact day, but she's pregnant and they know the time is drawing near. And Joseph says, we're going to go together. I will be with you. Joseph chooses to take his faith home. Joseph chooses to go and care for his wife. Joseph chooses to make his marriage the most important thing. Joseph chooses to live out his faith there. This is what God calls us to. It's funny how today people like to segment their faith from the rest of life. People like to take and say, sure, I believe in Jesus Christ. Sure, I'm going to go to heaven one day. But what in the world does that have to do with how I live my life? That's how a lot of people live. And they like to take that part, but they don't want to put that with the rest of their life. They don't want to put that into their marriage and into their relationships and into their integrity and into their quiet time and into their career and into how they drive and how they talk and how they relate. But God calls us that full life surrender. That's what he calls us to. And Joseph was willing to do that. So the Bible says here he takes Mary, his betrothed wife, who's great with child. She's the one who is at a vulnerable state, she's the one who has been gossiped about. She's the one that everybody had something to say about because she's pregnant and Joseph and her hadn't even really gotten married yet. And how can that be? She says it's from an angel. That seems ridiculous. That seems impossible. How in the world can any of that be? But faith says what God says is more important than what others say. And I'm going to take my faith home. I'm going to live my faith out in my marriage. I'm going to live it out there first. God called him to it then, and he calls men and women to it today as well. He calls us to live out our faith in our home. We're not called to come here and sing about forgiveness and redemption and then go home and act like that never happened. We're called to take that same forgiveness and redemption and live it out at home with our spouse We're called to take that same tenderness that we like to sing about here that he offers us and we're to offer that to our spouse at home. We're called to live that out there. We're called to take that same sacrificial love that he has given to us that we are extremely grateful for and take that home and demonstrate that to our spouse. We're called to make our home the real sanctuary of the gospel, the place where we live that stuff out where a husband and a father says, I will be the man of God that he has called men to be today. I will be the one who initiates the spiritual conversation. I will be the one who is the living example of Christ in my home. I will be the one who takes the lead on spiritual matters. I will be the one who lays down his life for his wife, for his children with confident faith in what God has called him to. That's the kind of faith we're called to have. It's the kind of faith where a wife and a mother says, I have been designed to receive and to love, and I will do that in my home. I will be a picture of what it looks like to receive the love of God, to live in faith even when I don't understand what the lead is doing. I'll love, I'll serve, I'll honor, I'll respect, I'll sacrificially live to God carry out God's plan in my home. It's in the home where men and women live out the roles they've been given. You know, that's the clearest picture of the gospel on the planet today. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church and wives love your husband in the same way the church loves Christ. We preach about the gospel here. We preach the gospel here we do our best to live it out here, but the place that it has great believability is in your home. When a child sees a mom and dad relating in that way, the gospel becomes believable. It's in the home where we practice reconciliation. It's in the home where we practice faith. It's in the home where we talk about God's word. It's in the home where we pray and seek God together. It's in the home that we seek to obey God. It's in the home that we lift up the name of Christ. It's in the home where we practice everything that we preach here. If the gospel has called you home, then you've got to take the gospel into your home if you want to see God do something great and fresh. Amen? Amen. When we do... God causes miracles to happen. I want you to see what happened for Mary and Joseph because they did what God called them to do. They left where they had been to go to where he had called them, even though it seemed insignificant to most, even though it seemed little to most. God does great things when we're willing to take even the smallest steps of obedience. Here's what it is in verse six. Look at it. So it was that while they were there, the days would be completed for her to be delivered. The time passed, verse seven, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now you might look at this passage and think, wow, that is an incredible miracle. Some people look at this whole situation, and if you're a mother and you've given birth before, this whole thing looks miraculous to you. Because here they are, far from home. There's no doctor, there's no nurses, there's no mom, there's no grandmother, there's no friends, there's no midwife, and Mary is going to give birth to her firstborn child in a dark and lonely place. And you'd think, that's a miracle. You might think, well, it wasn't, it wasn't even a sterile situation. There were animals all nearby. They lay him in a manger. How dirty, how filthy. Isn't there going to be disease? Isn't this dangerous? They're wrapping him in swaddling cloths. Oh, my goodness. What are they doing? It's just a miracle that he didn't get sick, that something didn't happen to him. Maybe those are miracles, but there was a greater miracle that happened that night. It wasn't just the setting it wasn't just the fact that she gave birth, it was her firstborn without any kind of assistance. The greatest miracle that happened on that night was that Mary gave birth to the Son of God. God would intervene in the affairs of man, God would send his holy Son to earth to become a savior. For a people who had rejected him, laughed at him, rebelled against him, and God would show grace anyway. God would do what was impossible because it was a virgin who was giving birth. She had not known a man, but God would do the impossible because with God, all things are possible. And a miracle happened that night in that she gave birth and she gave birth to the Son of God. Something she could not have done on her own, something that could have not been accomplished by anyone else, God did. God provided a savior. God provided a way for redemption. God provided a way for man to be free from his sin through the birth of his son who would be a savior. God did something miraculous that night. But that's what happens when you choose to obey what God says. He will work an absolute miracle in your life. So if you've got spots today in your life, areas today that to you right now seem overwhelming, difficult, impossible, insignificant, no way, no how, can't see it, don't see how, then that is the perfect setup for God to work. But what he's looking for are those who will believe him and say, God I can't see it, but I know your word says it, so I'm gonna trust you over what I see, and I'm coming home. I'm coming home to you. I'm coming home without understanding it all. I'm coming home in faith, and I'm coming to bring you into my home. Wouldn't it be incredible if in this day the greatest work that happened on our land, stay with me here, wasn't what happened in the White House, but what happened in our houses. Yeah. When the Spirit of Jehovah comes in and He takes a father and a mother who were at odds with one another, who were stuck in a rut of conflict, who were filled with all kinds of pain. And he takes their heart and he turns their heart. And instead of them being consumed with their guilt and their shame and their fear and their wants and their pleasures and their desires, he breaks that heart and he turns that heart to him and to the other. And they come together in a way that they thought could never have happened. And wouldn't it be incredible if the hearts of fathers and mothers were all of a sudden turned to their children? And not toward everything else that's going on in the world today. Not toward work. Not toward their own pleasures. Not toward their own reputation. Not toward what's going on on social media. But their hearts were turned back to their children. And if that same spirit filled children all of a sudden with a love for their parents that they'd never experienced before. A heart turned to him and to her and that home was redeemed. This is what God wants to do. And miracles happen when you truly turn your heart toward home and toward home. If you believe that today, then you're in the perfect spot for God to work. Would you bow your heads with me today? Father, I know in this room there's enough pain, there's enough guilt, there's enough confusion to keep us all from believing that a miracle would be possible. There's enough past. There's enough of our own stubbornness to keep us from that. But God, I thank you that while we were stubborn, resistant, rebellious, and caught in our sin, you sent your son to be a savior. And you loved us then. And I thank you that you still love us with that love. And that today... The areas in our life that we think can't be redeemed, can't be remade, can't see life again, are the very areas that you want to work. So, God, help us to never call what we see impossible and insignificant. Instead, May we see with eyes of faith. May we see with eyes of hope. And may we come home to you. May we turn our hearts to you. May we come home, running home in despair, running home in our brokenness, running home in need of cleansing, and find you there waiting, meeting us to receive us, cleanse us, fill us with hope. And God, I pray that that hope would transform our homes, that the greatest revival this land has ever seen would start at the lowest level, in the level of individuals whose hearts are turned. They're turned toward one another, a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband and a a father to his children and a, a mother to her children and the children to her parents. And God, would you make all things new? Would you, would you redeem what's broken in our land, the homes? Would you restore what has been filled with so much pain? God, this is what we cry out for. We come home to you today and cry out for you to come into our homes today, Father. We're asking by your grace, by your mercy, and in the name of the one who came to redeem all things, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Uh, The Lord has been good here at Vertical as we've been able to experience uh, quite a few baptisms lately. And I love to see the Lord at work on all ends of the spectrum of spiritual life. People deepening in their faith, who have walked with Christ for decades and people coming to Christ for the first time and declaring that through baptism. So, this morning, I'm excited to introduce to you JC Knapp. Come on up, JC. She has watched family and brothers and sisters, or brothers, she's the sister, uh, be baptized. And so, you're the youngest in the family. All bunch of brothers all taking care of you, right? Yeah, taking care of you. That's awesome. And so we got to talk a couple weeks ago in my office, and uh, I've never heard such a confident display of faith and a, and a certainty about what God had done in her life, and this understanding of who Christ is and what baptism is all about. And she was ready. She was ready back then to do baptism, but we waited till today. So, Jason, I'm very excited for you. I'm excited that God has called you, that God is obviously at work in your family, and he has a purpose for your life, and it all begins here. So let's make our way back here to the trough. Baptism is a beautiful picture, of course, of what Christ has done for us. Let me help you in here. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, have a seat. Good. You can scoot way over here. There you go, yeah. he's swimming around down in there. It's awesome. I know you see everybody out there. It's good to have family here. You've got your own family, but also a church family. Many of them have done the same thing you're doing today, and so they celebrate with you because this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. He died and he rose again so that you could have new life, so that your sins could be buried and you could have new life in him, and that's what this is a picture of today. So, J.C., I'm excited for you, proud of your decision, and we all want to celebrate with you. So with that, I baptize you today as my sister in Christ. You are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life.